Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices Minipod. The notion of digital health passports is one that has emerged as a controversial possibility in a number of countries as the world seeks ways of living with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But the question remains, what is the most realistic balance between health protection and enabling economic activity? And what might the world look like if the use of digital health passports is enforced? Lee Shoup is a thought leader, writer and public speaker, and he has explored the idea of digital health passports in his chapter in the book, Aftershocks and Opportunities 2, Navigating the Next Horizon. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about you and your work. Sure, my name is Lee Shoup. I'm a consulting futurist. I typically work with large corporations. I'm based in Silicon Valley, so I'm right in the middle of the technology revolution. And uh, that has both uh, hyperbole and really cool innovations at the same time. <laughs> As it's always fun to sort between the two. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, doing it for about like 20 a... years. And oh, uh, right. I'm one of the founding members of the Association of Professional Futurists, which has now, uh, now been going about 15 years since yeah. become international. That, I, I love that idea, the, the comment you made about the uh, hyperbole and, and, uh, and the reality. That's a whole nother podcast, though. Let's, um, uh, let, let's tuck in then. And first of all, I really love your provocative scenario in the book. Can you walk us through it? What were the kind of the key points that you wanted to, to pull out in writing that scenario? Sure. And the really funny thing about it is that so much of it has come to pass so quickly that I almost feel like the book is history rather than futures. <laughs> Um, I originally wrote the chapter over a year ago, and because of some delays in publication, I feel a lot of the stuff's already happened. So I feel like I didn't push the edges hard enough. What I was thinking about was the need to know if people are vaccinated or not, especially in the US, where we have a very polarized uh, group of people, you know, anti vaxxers and people who are very pro vaccination. Mm. And to be able to open up the economy, you have to understand where people are at. And that made me quickly think about, you could have two classes of people, those who are vaccinated and have full privileges to go places, much like you're seeing in New York or LA now, or even in Paris, and people that are vaccine resistors who have just limited mobility and limited access to places because they're more dangerous to be around. And that's caused a huge political schism in the US, you know, not surprisingly. Um, but also elsewhere, I've been surprised to see the amount of protests that we've seen in, you know, in Germany and in France, for instance. It's interesting, isn't it, how um, different populations around the world seem to have very different feelings of trust or otherwise in the benefit of, of vaccinations. What, what's, what's behind this extreme polarization in the US? Well, I think a few things. I mean, first, um, I think we have some of the most active disinformation campaigns ever waged, you know, around the vaccine from various bad actors, both state actors and just conspiracy theorists who just don't know any better. Uh, we also have a political party that has really put its weight behind the anti-vax movement, which is really silly when you think about it, because it's not very smart for a political party to have less voting members because they're dying of COVID. <laughs> Yet here we are. <laughs> it's a, nothing, so nothing so strange as, as reality. So how can we best balance the need, do you think, between public health with the desire 
for personal privacy, because certainly in Europe and, and in the UK, we've kind of seen this debate between how much of our liberty are we willing to give up for the greater health good? And, you know, that that's a still an ongoing debate even now. It is a tricky debate. And I think uh, Great Britain, to its credit, is much more socially oriented and less individualistically oriented than the U.S. You know, I, I see that as a as a continuum. I think in the U.S. because we, you know, we have this sort of frontier ethos and this sort of do-it-yourself, you know, individualism that that's worked against us in some ways. And this is a, this is a bit of an aside, but but uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the the, the nature of, of the polarization in the U.S. and. I saw glimpses of a study recently that showed the uh, different rates of vaccination take up across constituencies that had voted Republican or Democrat and the, the Democrat type areas have, have picked up more of the vaccines. Why is that? It's fascinating. I, I'm an avid consumer of the Pew Internet data and a lot of great data has come from them about the vaccine. Turns out the two biggest predictors of whether you're vaccinated or not are number one, your news source, if it's Fox News or MSNBC, and your Democrat and your party affiliation, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Some moderate Republicans are starting to come around, but there is a far right wing of the Republican Party that is still very opposed to not only vaccines, but wearing a mask and just very simple things that can be done to stop the spread of the virus. Yeah, and to me, it's amazing that a political party would get behind this, would get behind something that is so obviously opposed to public health and just common sense. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is completely fascinating. I mean, what personal privacy compromises should we accept in the face of high risk and rising mortality rates? And, and how can they be undone, do you think? I've thought about this a lot. I mean, for me personally, I think that I don't see any harm in us being transparent about the vaccinations that we've had. Mm -hmm. I think that runs from, you know, rubella to measles to polio to COVID to even tetanus. Um, that doesn't really reveal anything about underlying medical conditions. And it makes it very easy for people around us to assess the risk or the a reward in having us around, even for something as simple as working a construction job. If you could walk up with a vaccine passport and said, my tetanus shot is up to date, that would make you a more attractive hire for doing something as simple as construction work. Or boarding a plane, I think it's essential that we know if people have been vaccinated. Do you think potentially this kind of, are you vaccinated, are you not vaccinated, plays into um, issues of social inclusion, social exclusion. Is, is there a risk that that could exacerbate any existing social divides? Yes, it already is. It's making very clear divides. I'm a working musician and I've been very surprised at some of the music venues that I've played at. People found out that there were some people in the audience who were not vaccinated and they had a lot of social pushback about why were they showing up at a venue and mixing with other people if they weren't vaccinated. So there is a lot of social pressure on people that weren't vaccinated they were not expecting. And conversely, there's been very aggressive behavior from anti-vaxxers against people who are vaxxed. And you see this 
you know, all the time, airline attendants being punched or screamed at, you know, this very virulent reaction to people that are just doing common sense health stuff. So one of the things you said at the start of this was that you'd, you'd written the scenario a year ago and that one of the things that you've observed is that a number of the, the things that you were speaking about have actually come to pass. So if you were writing the scenario now, what would it look like in, say, five years time if these ideas around passports had not only applied to COVID, but had potentially started to apply in other areas as well. Sure, I think, yeah. I, I was amazed at how fast things came to pass I was writing about. You know, I thought a million dead in the US from COVID was a pretty ridiculous number when I wrote it. We're at 800,000 plus now. I mean, according to The Economist, who's measuring excess mortality within the US. Hmm. So, the numbers of people who died have, I certainly underestimated. You know, I think in five years time, if we saw an outbreak of Ebola or different strains of COVID that we haven't seen yet, that could definitely drive much more action towards a digital health passport. I think Europe is ahead of the US in this regard. I know it's being debated in Europe, but it feels like it's a lot closer to happening in Europe. In the US, because we have such a decentralized uh, governmental structure, you have governors, as in Florida and Texas, who are actively undermining public health measures. For instance, in Texas, it's illegal to um, require masks in a school. And several, several school districts have challenged this, but the idea that a state government would make wearing a mask, requiring a mask illegal, to me is just ludicrous. Yet this is happening. And there are several states that are, are doing this. And it's, it's just amazing to me that there's leadership that's doing things that are so contrary to just common sense public health measures. Again, another side, you're saying things that are just triggering other thoughts in my head. But what does this say about the trust that parts of the US population has in science? It's amazing to me the lack of trust that we have in science with friends that I'm, I've been joking that we're in a de-renaissance or de-reformation, you know, undoing all the gains we made by the scientific revolution that, that ended the Middle Ages. Yeah. I think we're at a place, you know, being in, centered in Silicon Valley, of course, I've been very optimistic about the internet and about, you know, and, and I agreed with a lot of the original utopian ideas around the internet people having access to information would be a great thing having you know the world's information at your fingertips would be a great thing what we didn't really think about was internet literacy and in the same way that media literacy is taught in communications schools now i i think that we're going to have to start teaching algorithmic literacy so that people that are using the internet and particularly facebook and other social media platforms understand that they're reacting to algorithms that are designed to provoke a response mm -hmm. and that it's really about provoking a response and engaging you so that you respond to advertising versus giving you truthful or wise information and so you really have to be smart about how you're consuming information and now we've come to a place where an article in a scientific journal is equated with a youtube video from somebody who knows nothing about science and particularly for less educated Americans, there's just not the filter or the 
or the experience and expertise to be able to filter good information from bad information. All information has become equal and, and that doesn't make any sense. You alluded earlier on to the idea that um, uh, this is the first of potentially other major um, disruptive pandemics in the future. So what are the lessons you think should be taken away in terms of preparedness? Because as futurists, I guess that's one of the things that we hope that the work we do helps the people we work with come to terms with, not a specific risk perhaps, but a broader preparedness. So you know, what opportunity, what benefit might you see around preparedness in the future? So many lessons learned, and I really hope we take them to heart. I think we're learning that you know, we really are in an interconnected global world right now, and that we're gonna have to monitor diseases and pandemics really at the source as much as possible. The Obama administration did an admirable job of doing this because they reacted to outbreaks of Ebola uh, in Africa, and they got networks set up and scientists on the ground so that they could try to understand those outbreaks and deal with them locally before they became global outbreaks. Uh, the Trump administration pulled funding and attention for a whole lot of that stuff and sort of crippled our systems right at the time we needed them the most. So I think we're going to need better communication, uh, better preparedness. I think it's been a lesson for a lot of our medical systems that they need to be able to respond you know, much more quickly. I think we need to take these things much more seriously when they first begin. I remember reading the first articles about COVID and as futurists saying, this is going to be a really big deal. Uh, when a lot of people are still poo-pooing it, and it became a big deal even faster than I thought it would be. And I thought it would become a big deal fast. <laughs> so I think being faster to respond, being more agile to respond, and better funding, you know, smart preparedness are probably the biggest lessons to be learned. Lee, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your insights. Tell us, how can people contact you, learn more about what you do? I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter as Lee Shoup. Uh, my website is leeshoupconsulting.com. And I am a frequent speaker and uh, blogger. Well, Lee, thank you once again for your time and sharing your insights. And uh, as I say, it was a brilliant chapter in the book as well. Thank you, Steve. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices mini pod and there'll be another episode along very shortly.